If you would, would you join me in prayer? Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Before we get to the scriptures, I want to say this. Uh, This sermon is going to feel a little bit discombobulated and disjointed, but if you stay with me, I think I'm going to bring it full circle. All right? So... There has been a lot of ink that has been spilled about the polarization that we as Americans feel at this particular moment in history. And increasingly, what we're finding and what's being reported and talked about and studied is the idea that having differing opinions is becoming something that's untenable within relationships. That it's becoming increasingly difficult to have relationships with people who think differently than you on particular issues. So it used to be that as that who you voted for or what political party you identified with didn't matter all that much in your relationships. In fact, it didn't even really that matter that much between the two political parties that the two major political parties in the United States weren't really that different. They they were full of the spectrum of people across political ideologies. And so you could go to the Republican Party and you could find Republicans who actually talked like and, uh, and, and voted for policies that we would now consider more Democrat. And you could go into the Democrat Party and you could find Democrats who talked like and thought about policies that we would now say sound more Republican. But over the last 50 years or so, there's been this filtering and unification of the, within the parties so that each party is more homogenized within their ideology. And so, so those who maybe were Democrat but maybe thought more Republican have shifted over and gone over to the Republican Party, and the vice versa has happened with the Democrats going from the Republican to the Democratic Party. And the result of this is the parties have grown farther apart ideologically from one another, right? And what's happened as the parties have grown farther apart from one another in terms of how they think about policy, antagonism has increased between the parties and with, between Americans as they identify with one party or another. Moral psychologist uh, by the name of Jonathan Haidt in his book, The Righteous Mind, he, he makes this interesting statement. He says this, people who devote their lives to studying something often come to believe that the object of their fascination is the key to understanding everything. So it's this, what he's talking about here is this human phenomenon that more that we look at something and the more that we think about this particular thing, the more that we believe that this will solve the world's problems. So if you are someone who is very concerned with poverty, and you read a lot about poverty, and you think a lot about party, poverty, and you advocate for party, party, po- <laughs> poverty, and you look at its causes and where it's coming from, and you try to understand the distribution of wealth and how that affects people, you come to see the world through a lens that believes that if we could solve poverty in a particular way, we would solve a lot of our problems. Or if you believe that personal choice and freedom are the key to society's problems, so you read about it and you, you uh, listen to those who talk about it in those lines and, and you tend to spend all of your time with people who think like that, 
the more you do that, the more you come to believe that that's actually what's going to solve the problems of society. That if we just give people more freedom, if we give people the opportunity to make their own choices and we leave government or institution out of it, then we'll solve world's problems. If you believe that parenting, like kids these days, and so you read books about parenting and you go to conferences about parenting and you stay up about all the trends and you try to understand different discipline techniques and different educational techniques and all this sort of stuff and you come to believe at some point that if we just parented in a particular manner, then we may solve solve the problems now, but down the road with our kids in the next generations, then our problems will be solved. Or if you you are have massive olfactory senses and you're all about essential oils and you just like, okay, if we apply them at the right time and in the right hot spots around your body, spearmint and lavender will solve like if that's you, I just don't understand you. Like I just I'm just throwing that out there. I don't get it. So as the parties become more homogenized in their ideology as they stay in their camps and as they begin to only converse with people who think like them and see the world like them and believe the same ideological things as them, they become more rigid about what they believe will solve the world's problems. And as they become more rigid about what they believe will solve the world's problems, they begin to relate to those across political aisles differently. Because no longer are you simply someone who votes differently than me or aligns yourself with a different political party. But now, now the things that you're, you're advocating for are not just things I don't believe in, but they're things that I think are problematic. They're things that I think will contribute to the world's problems. And, and, and you're working against what I believe is going to solve these things. And suddenly, as this antagonism continues to happen and this continues to spiral, that that's, it's not just that's the problem, you're the problem for thinking that, and you're the problem for not seeing the way the world the way that I do. Now, all of a sudden, fellow citizens become political opponents, and political opponents become enemies. They're people who should leave. They're people who have to be trounced, whose ideas have to be pushed completely out of the public sphere. They're people who we can disrespect and demean and denigrate because they're actually the problem. And, and that's true on both sides. I'm, I'm not, it's, it, it's just true of the world we live in right now. And the, and the reality is, is this kind of antagonism and this kind of thinking doesn't exist within politics alone, but it also thinks within the, it, it exists within the church as well. In the left, within the church, those who would, you know, be theologically more, you know, liberal, tend to approach the gospel and see it from, from a perspective of ethics and justice. So, so the gospel is horizontal in its emphasis, and it's concerned about how we treat our neighbor, and tends to focus on issues of justice and fairness and equality and, and oppression and emphasizing Jesus' work to liberate to liberate people from the principalities and the powers of this world. And then those who would be on the theologically conservative side tend to emphasize the vertical nature of religion, right? So you just need to get right with God. We just got God to be more involved in our individual lives and and in our society. People just need Jesus then we begin to solve the problems and then we're focusing on the right aspects of the gospel. 
And, and yeah, the horizontal stuff is important, but we're really kind of fuzzy on how that fits in and what the role is and even what it looks like and how much we should be concerned about it because really it's just all about our vertical relationship, our relationship with God. And you stay in camp, in one camp too long, and you only talk about one aspect of the faith and of the gospel for so long, you find yourself separated from others and not just separated, but increasingly antagonistic towards them. And that's not shalom. We've been talking for the last couple of weeks about this idea of shalom, this idea of harmony, the way it's supposed to be, the, the world as God intends it to be. And so shalom is all-encompassing. It's right relationship. It's a harmonious relationship with God, vertical, but it's also a harmonious relationship with our neighbor, horizontal. And I think it's safe to say that we live at a time that makes shalom with others difficult. Harmony in our relationships with our neighbors is becoming increasingly more difficult, especially when we think differently about the world, about faith, about politics, about parenting, about you name it. And if that's true, the question for us becomes, as ministers of reconciliation, as ambassadors for Christ, how do we become ambassadors of shalom? How do we become a people who who help to facilitate relationships that are more harmonious. That's what I want to get at this morning. But we're going to have to start in a place that's going to feel very, very different. So turn me to Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship or daughtership through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on, his, on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. That is a theologically dense section of scripture. But what I want to do is I just want to look at the metaphor that's in there. Undergirding this entire passage is a metaphor of adoption. 
Adoption is the idea that in Christ, we have been brought into the family of God. God chose us, not because we're good enough, not because we've done right, but because God has loved us. And because God because God's love for us was so great, God marked us with the seal of the Holy Spirit, which guarantees our inheritance. Our inheritance as sons and daughters of God is the same inheritance as Christ. We are heirs to the same inheritance, which is the resurrection of the body and communion with God. This is our promise, and this is what is guaranteed to us by the Holy Spirit. And because we have been adopted by God, we are his children, and this is our identity. Now, we've talked about this a number of times, but what I want to do is I want to try to get our minds around the scandal that is God adopting us and the degree to which our identity fundamentally is changed forever. So, Soren Kierkegaard, who is a Danish philosopher, has this parable that I think is going to drive it home. Imagine that you are, not yet, you are a day laborer. All right? Imagine you're a day laborer. And so you're just a plebe who works out in the field somewhere, and maybe the field that you work is sort of on this nice rolling hilltop, and as you work your field, you can look across the valley, and across the valley, you are able to see the castle of the king built on the next hill. So you got the picture, right? You're in the field, you're working, you can look over your shoulder, and you see the castle there. And, and, and you know that the king is a great man, but, and you know about the king, but, but you don't know the king, right? Maybe you've seen the king's caravan traveling from the ca- castle to another kingdom, but never in your wildest dreams would you imagine that the king knows that you even exist. And perhaps one day, maybe, maybe the hope is that one day you'll be in the right place at the right time, and the king will get out of his caravan. Maybe you're in the city, and the, you know, selling some stuff at the market or whatever, and the king passes by, and maybe he shakes your hand, right? And if he did, that would be an amazing story that you would be able to recount to your kids and your grandkids, and, and God willing, your great-grandkids for years to come. But, but you don't suppose that would ever happen, and you, don't, and you don't believe that the king even knows that you exist, but you know he exists. And one day you're out in the field and you're working. And the king's messenger comes and says, Hey, the king would like to have a word with you. Imagine the surprise. Imagine the, 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 the shock. Imagine even the confusion that you would feel. So you go with the king's messenger. And you show up in the presence of the king. And you're standing in his throne room. Perhaps the king is all dressed up in his royal garments. The crown is on his head. He's sitting on a beautiful throne. You're surrounded by the ornateness of the castle. Like the, king, the, the grandeur of the kingdom is on full display as you stand in the presence of the king. And the king says, I'm so glad you're here. I've decided that I would like to make you my daughter-in-law or my son-in-law. what's rolling through your head at that particular moment? Uh, Do you have the right person here? Are you sure about this? Wait, 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 wait. Are you playing a joke on me? 
Like if I say yes, they're going to be like, how foolish are you? Do you think that you are good enough to be my, my in-law? Banish him to the, to the prisons. What, what do you think your friends are going to say? Like you can go home and be like, guess what happened to me today? The king wants me to be the son-in-law. You think everybody's going to be like, no way, that's so true. Or they're going to be like, you're an idiot. You are a fool. That never happened. They wouldn't believe you, right? And you'd be run out of town. You'd be treated as a laughingstock. Kierkegaard goes on to say this. He says, quite humanly, the day laborer would be more or less puzzled, self-conscious, and embarrassed by it. He would, and this is the humanness of it, humanly find it very strange and bizarre that the emperor wanted to make a fool of him, make him the laughingstock of the whole city. Why would you feel this way? Because you recognize that the king is other than you, right? The king is completely, like, there is a caste system, there is a hierarchy, and the king operates and lives out of a different sphere than you. Again, an encounter with the king would be something that you would talk about. An encounter with the king would give you maybe even special status among your friends because they would want to hear the story again and again and again. Like, tell us the story about the time you met the king. We'll buy you around. Tell us the story. It would grant you sort of this special status within the community. That person met the king. That person got to be with the king. But it wouldn't fundamentally change who you are to simply meet the king. You're still a day laborer. You're just now a day laborer with a really good story. But if it's true that the king wants to make you a daughter-in-law, that the king wants to make you a son-in-law, and it happens, now your identity is fundamentally changed. You are no longer a day laborer. You're royalty. And that gulf that used to exist between you in the field and the king in the castle is now non-existent. You're a son. You're a daughter. You relate to the king differently now. There's this closeness, there's this intimacy, and that changes everything. That, brothers and sisters, that's adoption. Theologian J. Todd Billings says this, adoption by the king is such a radical notion, we resist it. We would rather have the occasional brush of God's presence or a relic of his solidarity with us so that God can be an appendage of our identity. But God wants more than that. God wants our lives, our adopted Identity. What Billings is saying here, I think, is something that we need to pay attention to. He says this, this idea is so radical, this idea is so scandalous that, that, that we almost step back at it. We don't want it because it's too much to be changed that, to that degree, to have our identity reoriented in that manner. It is just too much. What we'd prefer is, can I have the encounter with the king? Can I maybe even, maybe he gives me something and I can show it off to people, some relic of the encounter. Can I have the story that sets me apart just a little bit, but I get to stay who I am. I'm essentially still the same person, and now, now I'm just this person that's had this cool encounter. Now this story gets wrapped up in my identity, but I'm not wrapped up in his. But the scandal of adoption is that we don't get to have God as simply an appendage to our identity. Rather, it becomes our identity. You are a child of God. 
You are a son. You are a daughter. You are an heir to the inheritance the same as that is Christ. That is the heart of the gospel. When God adopts us according to his divine prerogative to make us sons and daughters, it changes everything about us. We now are children of God. And notice real quickly how relational this is. Typically when we think of ideas like justification and sanctification and being made right with God, it's sort of forensic in its nature, right? It's as as, as personal as a courtroom. We stand before God, the judge, and we are found guilty. Christ, our advocate, our defender, offers on our behalf a case saying, I will die, I will pay the punishment that they deserve so that they might go free and walk out of this courtroom as a free individual. Right? It's forensic. But notice how relational this is. We are united to Christ, the person, by the triune God who is a relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that we can be adopted as sons and daughters. Relationship, relationship, relationship. And this idea of union with Christ is simply riddled throughout the New Testament and throughout history. You know, the term Christian is used three times in the New Testament. This phrase, in Christ, or the idea of being united to Christ, in Christ, 165 times. It's central to us understanding the gospel. One biblical scholar says this, being in Christ is the essence of Christian proclamation and experience. Another one says, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. The whole doctrine of salvation wrapped up in this idea that you and I united to Christ. We are in Christ. And still one more. In Christ is an expression of intimate, interrela- intimate interrelatedness, analogous to the air that is breathed. It is in the person, yet at the same time, the person is in it. <laughs> that one's good. What's the apex of salvation? It is that we are in Christ like the air that we breathe. The air that we breathe is it's here. It's out here. It's all around us. We move in it. In him we move and find our being. And it is in me. It's out here. And it's in here. Me in Christ. Christ in me. It surrounds us. It engulfs us. It permeates me. Permeates us. Me in Christ. Christ in me. Which, which just think about it from this perspective. If this is true, me in Christ and Christ in me, then that is, that is something that is a reality that cannot be taken from me. For how do you take me out of that in which I find my being? You can't take me out of it. No matter what circumstance I find myself, me in Christ, Christ in me. God forbid my wife is taken from me. Me in Christ, Christ in me. My children get sick. Me in Christ, Christ in me. I'm fired for whatever reason. Me in Christ, Christ in me. The pain of this world overwhelms me and berates me and continues to knock against the walls of my house. Me in Christ and Christ in me. It changes nothing. No circumstance we go through changes this fact. Christ in me, me in Christ, I am a child of God and no one can take it from me. This is the crux of it. 
Now, my guess is that some of you are sitting here going, oh man, this, is, this sounds great, this is philosophical, it sounds so hope-filled and joy-filled, and it sounds also super theological, so how do I get it? What do I have to do? Theologian Martin Laird says this, union with God is not something that needs to be acquired, but realized. What do you need to do? I think it's already yours. <laughs> when you confess Christ as Lord, this already is. You are united to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you are adopted by the Father. You can't get more of that. You can't increase your daughtership. I'm going to work really hard and become more of a daughter. No, you're a daughter. That's your identity. End of story. It's yours. It's already been acquired. Whether you know how it works or you think it sounds too philosophical for any practical purpose does not change its efficacy or its reality. It's the air you breathe. Christ in me, me in Christ. And so our responsibility then is not to try to work to garner it or to try to acquire it, but our responsibility is simply to, to, to push deeper into the reality and our understanding of it, to understand how it permeates all of our lives and all of our beings. This summer, on sabbatical, Sarah and I went to Antigua. We went to a resort in Antigua. And, on, you know, they had the beach area, and they had all kinds of different activities that you could do on the beach. They had kayaks, they had paddle boards, you could get uh, snorkeling gear and go snorkeling on the reef that was just right there. And then they had this thing that was sitting up on the beach, they only had one of them, it was called a Hobie cat, which is sort of like a personal catamaran, if you ever see that. So, you know, catamarans, like the, the sailboat with the two things on either side. Yeah, that, a hull, two hulls with like a net across it and a pole in the middle with a big old sail, right? It's a Hobie cat. So we had looked at it all week, and then finally, towards the end of the week, we were like, let's, let's take the Hobie cat out. So I go up to the guy who is, uh, you have to check all of the beach gear out with, and I said, hey, I'd like to check out the Hobie cat. And he just looks at me and goes, no. <laughs> I was like, why can't I take the Hobie cat out? He looks at me and goes, do you know how to sail? I'm like, no, but I'll figure it out. No, you can't take it out. So the only way you can take it out is if I go with you. I was like, okay, when can you go with me? He's like, 1.30 this afternoon. It's like 9 in the morning. He's like, 1.30. I was like, all right, I'll show up at 1.30. And my thought was, I'd go out on the Hobie Cat, he'd show me how to do it, and then I'd come back and I'd get Sarah and a couple of the other friends that we made there, and we'd go out and have a grand time on the Hobie Cat out on the, on the ocean there. We get out on the Hobie Cat, and then, and then he's like, uh, and I was like, so we'll just do this, and then I'll go back to the shore and get everybody else? He's like, no. <laughs> this guy was great. No. So I was like, oh, so okay, so Sarah and I go, he, we go back to the store, we get Sarah, so we get at least one experience on the Hobie Cat. He lets me take the Hobie Cat out, which is super easy when the wind is at your back, right? You just let loose the thing, the sail catches the wind, poof, you go out. Then we turn around to go back into the wind. And we were like Tommy Boy out on the lake, need a little wind here, right? Like, just stuck. And eventually he takes over the reins and the sail and he, he, he does these things, maneuvering the boat to catch the wind so that he can get us back to shore. This is what it's like. Our union with Christ is the wind. And sometimes it's super easy to catch it. 
Sometimes everything lines up and life is going well and we feel it, right? We feel the connection with God. We feel worship. We, we feel it deeply and we just open up our sails and the wind takes us and we go. Sometimes life is hard. It feels like we're sailing against the wind. And it's in those moments that we learn, have to learn how to catch the wind that's always there, right? The wind just is. We don't get to control the wind. It just is. It's there. Our responsibility is to catch it. And to catch the wind that is union with Christ takes practice. Just like sailing takes practice. It takes practice to come to the table and to remember at the Eucharist that I'm not just doing this thing in remembrance. I'm not just eating some bread. I'm not just drinking of the cup. But I am participating in the reality that I am united with Christ. Me in Christ. Christ in me. When we celebrate baptisms up here, it's not just, oh, look at that, that's nice, they're a pretty family, look how cute that kid is, Nate messed something up. Like, it's not just about that, it's, it's I've been united with Christ. Just as that child is being united with Christ and the water is a visible sign of an invisible reality that this child or this individual is being united to Christ, so I, I, I who am baptized have had this experience, I am united with Christ. Me and Christ and Christ and me. It's to practice throughout our weeks and the mundane activities that happen from Monday to Saturday. That no matter what we're doing, whether we're aware of it or not, me and Christ and Christ in me. And it takes practice to cultivate an awareness of at all times during the day that this reality is still engulfing us. It takes practice to remember that no matter what that person says in me, what that person says in me, what's happened out there, me and Christ, Christ in me. It takes practice to let our union with Christ identify our, re, our ident, or define our identity and not let our passions or our interests or our thoughts define our identity. Yeah. It takes practice to leave behind our strategies of acquisition. There are no nine steps here to follow. There's no boxes to check. There's no e-course that you can sign up for for greater understanding. There is only one thing that I believe you can do. Be still. And know. Know that I am God and know me and Christ and Christ in me. Be still. Just be still. Come on, come on. There has to be more, Nate. No. Seriously, I don't think you have this figured out, Nate. No, me neither. I don't. But I'm practicing. I'm practicing me in Christ and Christ in me. Now, let me try to bring this full circle here. Right? Because where we started and where we are right now seems very, very far apart. It can feel like when we are focusing on our union with Christ that it is a completely individual endeavor. And there's a degree to which it is individual. But what we have to remember is that I am not the only one who has been adopted by Christ and I am not the only one who lives in the reality of this air that we breathe that is Christ. So if you will, imagine a wheel 
with a hub at the center and spokes all coming into the center from the outside. Imagine that the center of the hub is God and our awareness of our union with him. And there's a, we all are a spoke, right? And so we're somewhere along on this spoke. Now, this isn't a perfect analogy, but we're somewhere along on this spoke, some far away from the center that is being united with Christ. Some of us are a little bit closer. But as you think about that, if you're on the spectrum and you're far out away from that idea that you are united with Christ, if you're far away from the center who is God, it's also the place where you're farther from your, farthest from your neighbor. Right? Farther away you move from God, the farther away you move from your neighbor. And the closer you journey towards God, or the closer you move in your understanding, right? Again, th- this isn't a perfect analogy because Christ and me, me and Christ, we're never separated from this. But the more I move towards recognizing my union with Christ, the more I move closer to letting that define my identity in its fullest sense, the closer I move to the person next to me. And as we move closer to the center, and as that identity becomes more and more of who we are than all the other identities that compete for over us, or, yeah, all the other identities that compete sort of fall away. The things that divide us matter less because me and Christ and Christ and me, and that's the same for you. And as I let those differences not have as much control over me, as I begin to broaden my understanding, like, no, 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 actually there's a greater identity here, as I begin to think, like, maybe I don't see the whole world the whole way. Maybe, maybe, maybe I start to give grace towards others and those antagonisms fall apart. Suddenly, shalom with others becomes more and more possible. Relationships begin to take the form that they're supposed to take. I begin to apply less intentions and make less assumptions about the person next to me, about what they believe or why they're believing what they believe or why they're doing what they believe. And I become more curious because Christ and me and me and Christ and that sort of curiosity, that willingness that Christ has to sit down next to someone and peel back the layers of their life, like we talked about last week, like now suddenly I'm able to do that. And the polarization of our time has less and less hold over me because our true identities come to the forefront. Yes, differences still exist, and yes, we have different opinions, and yes, some people still like uh, essential oils. Yes, all of that. But our ability to connect with one another increases as we recognize that what holds us fast draws us all together, and it's the same. Christ. Christ in me, me in Christ. Christ in you, us in Christ. Yeah, the way it's supposed to be. Let's pray. Father, you 
You've given us a new identity, and we are grateful. We are grateful, and we're able to say that we're grateful, maybe without even fully understanding what that means. Fully, without even fully understanding the scope to which it affects our entire lives. And so, Lord, I pray that our gratitude would continue to overflow and our gratitude would actually spur us to greater understanding and and, and greater curiosity about what it means that Christ in me and me in Christ is the air that we breathe. It is the fundamental reality that defines the world around us and it defines who we are. Christ in me, me in Christ. For this gift, for this grace, We give you thanks. We give you thanks. God our Father. Amen.